All right, are we? Okay, good. Do we have any feedback? All right. Our text for today, um, I think you guys in the bulletin, it says Second uh, Peter 2, starting in verse 11. Um, This, do I need to get it closer? Okay. Is this better now? All right. All right. Okay, you guys actually have the right one. Good. All right. Uh, we're starting in uh, the second part of verse 10 and going through verse 16. Bold and willful. Or to preface this, I mean, we are in our study in Second Peter, and uh, last week Howard started the sermon series on the false teachers. And so we're going to be continuing that today. And so we're kind of picking up on that theme still. And so it's, all that I'm going to read is about the false teachers. And so if you would, please stand with me as we will be reading from God's word. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational cre- animals, creatures of instinct... Born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. You may be seated. Is there anything more I can do with this? or I mean, it's, it's like touching my face. Is it okay? Is that better? All right. Probably the biggest hurdle that I can think that we're going to have today is a lot of people just don't think talking about false teachers is all that necessary. Um, by and large, I think it's probably the popular opinion that it's not really that helpful to preach against someone. It's just better to preach what we believe, and that's going to be more effective in the long run. The problem with that is that that is neither practical nor biblical. The first reason why it isn't practical is because the, the, need, the absence of a need for warning only exists in a world where there is no danger. If, you, if there's nothing to be afraid of, if there's nothing that's dangerous, then yes, you don't need warnings. But that's not the world we live in. Secondly, it's not biblical because Peter does this very thing. He's rebuking false teachers and he's calling them out. And Peter is giving us a warning because there is a real threat that we are supposed to take seriously. But not only is it that Peter, who is giving us a threat, because every word in the Bible is from God, God is giving us this warning for today. And so the reason why false teachers are so dangerous and you need to point them out is because they can bring destruction. And I've taught some lessons for over eight years now, and I remember when I was probably back around 17, which was actually eight years ago, believe it or not, uh, I had a little girl, her name was Sophie. And she was about three years old. She loved the water, didn't have a fear in the world. Now, that's not so good when you're around water because kids just jump in when you're not looking. 
And I remember I, I ended up talking to Sophie's mom after lessons and was like, yeah, it's really good. She's not afraid of the water, but we, we kind of got to watch this other side a little bit. And her mom said, I know, she's the same way with running out into traffic. She just doesn't have any care in the world, and she just keeps running. And I said, oh, well, well what are you doing about that? And she said, well, actually, it's gotten better. Two weeks ago, she was about to run out into traffic, and I caught her arm. And I'm like, Sophie, you will die if you get hit by this car. And she's just sitting there, ha, 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 that's funny. I mean, she just doesn't get it. And so her mom's like, what do I do? Well, a beetle is walking on the ground right next to her. And she says, Sophie, you see that beetle? She's like, yeah. She stomps on it and then drags her foot and says, Sophie, that is dead. Sophie looks at it and goes, she realizes, this is, okay, now it clicks for me. Dead, that, she's three years old, but the idea of dead wasn't clicking. And so her mom was, I mean, now, are we going to call Sophie's mom mean because she wiped the smile off her daughter's face? Are we going to call Sophie's mom mean because she ruined her fun? Because she made her afraid of something? No. Because she loved Sophie. She cared about her. She wanted to protect her and hold her back from something that was legitimately dangerous. And so if you love someone, you're going to warn them about things that are legitimate threats. And so either you, if you don't want to warn someone, either you don't agree there's a danger or you don't love them. But the thing is, Peter does love his church, Christ loves his church, and that's why he's given us this text today. And Peter is actually setting before us two paths. One is the path of righteousness, which he talked about more in chapter 1. Now he's setting for us the path of the false teachers. They're advocating two different paths, and God's word is the one that advocates the path of righteousness. But the false teachers, they also have their own words too. Now if you would, just look back with me briefly, if you have your Bibles, at chapter 1. In verses 19 through 21, this is what we're told about the word of God. This is after Peter has talked about how he saw the transfiguration of Christ. He had an amazing experience. And even after that, he says, We have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. And then verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along in the Holy Spirit. Now, the thing is, false teachers have their own words, too. And we saw that last week with Howard in verse 3 of chapter 2. And this is speaking of false teachers. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. So you see, false teachers have their words. God has his words. And the question is, which one will you listen to? And so the, the big idea I want us to see today, that the reason why false teachers are so dangerous is because our text shows us that we need to reject them because they have a perverted view of who Christ is and they have a perverted view of what the gospel is. And we see this, first of all, in uh, verse 15 of our text. This is, I'm, I'm starting at the bottom because this kind of gives the summation of how to understand the false teachers. It says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam. Now, right away, it says they've forsaken the right way. So that begs the question, what is the right way? If you go back to chapter 1, remember I said chapter 1 is all about the word of God and what the right way is. And we see that in verse 11 where it says, after Peter has just given this long explanation of how we grow in righteousness, in verse 11 he says, For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of, God, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The right way, if you go back through the passage, includes faith. We enter into the right way through faith, and that means we submit to God's word. God's word tells us we are sinful and we are in need of a savior. If we accept God, if we submit ourselves to God's evaluation of us, 
we accept the free gift he offers to us in Christ. We're submitting ourselves to Christ. That's the first step. We're having faith. Secondly, it's purchased through his righteousness. This is a reference to Jesus dying on the cross in our place. He lived a perfect life in our place, died on the cross, suffered the punishment we deserved so that we could enjoy the glory that he deserved. We also see it's granted by God's power in verse 3, that everything that we have in salvation comes from God. There is nothing we do to contribute to this. Everything that was necessary to bring us into the eternal kingdom has been provided by God. We see that we partake of this through God's promises, through his word, which is why the word of God is so central. In verse 4, and I, I want to read this one. It's talking about by his divine power, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. If you want to become like Christ, the word of God has to be a part of that process. If you don't, it's like I can't grow unless I eat. If I stop eating food, eventually I'll wither away. We cannot grow in our likeness of Christ unless we have the word of God. But we also see that part of our salvation is that Christ has changed our heart. And the reason why I'm saying that is because it says that we partake of the divine nature through his word. Having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. In other words, everything that you see wrong in this world, in one way or another, is attributed to the fact that we want things that we shouldn't. We've decided that we know better than God, and we've decided, yeah, God, I could have you. You said this will bring me death, but I want this more. You look around, I mean, anything, I mean, uh, any abuses in power, in money, in, in sex, all of it is because people are pursuing things they shouldn't want. And so that has to be, that is all tied up in the right way. And the reason why I'm spending so much time on this is because the first step for Peter is saying the false teachers have rejected this. They don't think that righteousness of God is the most important. They don't think that faith is important. They don't think that following God's authority is important. And everything else is going to unwind because of it. So that is why I believe we need to notice that's important. But there are also two things that I want us to notice about the false teachers is that there are almost two things. If you look at a modern-day false teacher, there are two things that false teachers will typically reject first. One, the authority of Scripture. Two, the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place as our substitute. I mean, you can look around. I mean, people who are like, they'll pay lip service to the fact that God's word is the Bible, but they don't want to submit to its authority. Because if you can get rid of the ultimate authority, you will ultimately get rid of the category of sin. Because if there's no ultimate authority, how can you call anything sin? Yeah, maybe, you know, in the time of the Bible writers, sexual immorality, homosexuality, you know, sex outside of marriage. Yeah, that was wrong back then, but we're in the 21st century now. If you don't have the word of God, how do you say otherwise? And so false teachers will always get rid of that first. Second thing is they'll deny the fact that Christ died in our place. Reason being is because they don't really believe in sin. You know, any problem that exists is that you know, we, we just are, we're trying real hard, but we're not really evil deep down. And secondly, if you reject that Christ died on the cross for your sins, he has no legitimate claim on your life. If he didn't buy you at the cross, you don't have to live for him. I mean, Paul himself says, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. So if we don't believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, I'm not really obligated to live for him, am I? 
And but now that's everything that they're rejecting. So that's just the first part. But now it's like, okay, people, you don't just exist in a vacuum. So if you reject Christ's path through the word of God, submitting to the authority of Christ, and now you go the other way, it says they go the way of Balaam. Who is Balaam? If you go back to the book of Numbers, Balaam was a prophet that was, a, uh, he was visited by a king named Balak. And he, Balak was king of the Moabites. And he was, this was during the time of Israel's wilderness. They were going around, and anyone that they fought, basically, they just pummeled them. Well, Balak saw the handwriting on the wall, and he realized, if I go head-to-head with Israel, this isn't going to end very well for me. So I need to appeal to some spiritual authority. Israel's God seems to be pretty powerful, so I need to get some God to curse Israel. So what he does, he goes to Balaam. Balaam at first says, no, God told me I'm not supposed to come with you. Well, then Balak says, well, okay, I'll sweeten the deal. I'll offer him more money. I'll offer him more prestige. I'll offer him more honor. So the guys come back to Balaam, and Balaam's like, well, okay, I'll go along, I suppose. And as he's going along, he's riding on his donkey. And in probably one of the more strange passages of Scripture, in our text it says, but Balaam was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. This happens when Balaam, he's riding on his donkey to go to see Balak. And all of a sudden, the donkey sees the angel of the Lord standing in front of Balaam with a sword drawn, getting ready to kill him. So the donkey, trying to save Balaam, is going from side to side, but keeps hitting Balaam into the wall. And so Balaam's getting upset, and so he starts beating the donkey. So finally, God opens the donkey's mouth and says, why are you beating me like this? And he says, because, you know, you're screwing things up for me. Well, the donkey's like, well, have I, I've been your donkey for a long time. Have I ever acted this way before? And Balaam's like, well, no. But at that point, God opens up Balaam's eyes, and he sees the angel of the Lord standing there with sword drawn. And that's when God says this to him. And this comes from Numbers 22, verse 32. Behold, I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse. Same thing. It's always about the way. Which path are you following? Balaam's way. Now, the thing is about Balaam. He goes on, and he is supposed to prophesy against Israel, but he never ends up cursing them. Every time, he keeps blessing them. And then at the end, Balak's upset, and he says, well, I can only say what God told me to say. So he's saying all the right things. But the reason why he is a perfect example of a false teacher is because on the outside, he looked really good. It was the intent of his heart that was evil. He only went to curse Israel or even try to curse Israel because he wanted money. He wanted prestige. He wanted honor. He wanted his own glory. And so the point is that the angel Lord tells Balaam from the onset, your mission is perverse. From the get-go, as soon as you walked out your door, you were perverse. Yeah, you might have looked good along the way. You might have said a lot of good things that no one could condemn you for. But from the get-go, at the heart of it, your way is perverse. And so that is why we also have to look at the false teachers in the same way. There are lots of people who are false teachers that will, like Howard mentioned last week, they'll use our terminology. They'll say, oh, Jesus saves. We'll ask them, what do you mean by that? Because at the core of it, they don't mean what we believe. They mean something different. Now, we're going to kind of keep building on this, but the next thing, there are two things that I want to address from the text that we can move through pretty quickly because Howard addressed them more last week. First is they recruit. We see this in 2 Peter 2.14. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Obviously, okay, a teacher teaches. So this is fairly obvious. They're, they're trying to get more people to follow them. They want either money or fame or both. And the problem with false teachers is they'll just keep spreading like cancer unless you cut them out. False teachers, by their very nature, are trying to stay in. 
They found a niche, and they're trying to exploit it. They've got a, a corner on the market, and they are not going out lightly. You're going to have to cut them out. That's why Peter has to give the warning. The other thing we have to talk about is the fact that the reason why false teachers are so dangerous is because their end is destruction. In 2 Peter 2.12, it says, They will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. Now, this really isn't surprising when you think about it. I mean, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, For the wages of sin is death. It's something that's like, that, that rule doesn't change no matter what time you're living in. Sin always brings death. Living contrary to God's design always ends in our harm. But the thing is, I mean, these guys, they don't care. They're going along in their own way. They don't believe in destruction. And that's because they really don't believe in judgment of sin. So the question still kind of is, okay, how do we identify false teachers then? If they can say things that sound good on the, outs- on the outside, but it's only their hearts that are wrong, how do you distinguish? There are two ways. Character and lifestyle. That is how we know who false teachers are. Looking at verse 10b, verse 11. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now, if you're not familiar with the word blaspheme, it means to speak, it's to slander someone else's character with your words. You're speaking against them. And so they have, these guys, they have inflated views of their own authority. They think they're, they're it. They're really important. And they're just, they can say whatever they want. And they're speaking against these higher beings. Now, the first thing I want to mention with the fact that their character is what distinguishes them. If you think about what character, how are we supposed to choose our elders? 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 both hit primarily on their character. So character is really, really important because character, I can say whatever I need to in the moment. If you put me in a corner, I can say what I need to to get off the hook and to make you happy. But if you watch the trajectory of my life, there are just things I won't be able to hide. I mean, if you're living with me, if you see me get frustrated, if you see me when I'm tired, when my guard goes down, you see the real me. And that's what Peter is saying. Look at their character because they are bold and willful. That is not at all the way pastors are supposed to be. That is not the way Christ was. Was he bold and willful? Was, I mean, he kept saying, thy will be done, not mine. He wasn't pushing his own agenda. But we want to also see that, you know, what does it mean to blaspheme the glorious ones? Who are, who are they? Now, tricky thing with this is that there's some disagreement among commentaries. And so the, probably the, the broadest way I can talk about it in a way that I think everyone would agree with is that this means to disrespect the authority of angels, to disrespect the fact that there is an influence. And why this is important is in 1 Peter 5, Peter says this in verses 8 through 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Simple reality is, I don't resist things I'm not afraid of. I don't spend a whole lot of time arguing against the existence of UFOs because I don't consider it as a legitimate threat. And so it's like, if you're going to resist the authority of false teachers, or resist the authority of angels, there's a reason. If Peter just said, watch against Satan, he's moving, he's got servants that we call false teachers, well, it makes complete sense that a false teacher would say, you're stupid, you actually believe Satan is working in this world? I mean, that's such a conspiracy theory. I mean, you're just so simplistic, that's so primitive. Satan doesn't have a plan. And yet Paul says that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. 
that he is the God of this world, that he has a plan and he is pushing it forward. And Peter earlier talks about the fact that Satan is a roaring lion, seeking someone whom he may devour. The question is, is that a legitimate threat or is he just talking kind of in fairy tales? I mean, he means it. And that's why it would seem likely that he wrote the first letter, the false teachers present in this community said, well, that's a bunch of nonsense, and so we're going to reject that. There's no Satan. Well, Peter's like, well, the problem is you're working for him, so of course, yes, you'd want to downplay him because you're trying to stay in. I mean, how many people would laugh at us if we spoke of Satan as being a real person trying to tempt us? I mean, if you talk, go around and say, man, I just felt so tempted by Satan this week, people are going to think you're weird. And so this is something that I think is really important to think about. Now, the question is, why would they disrespect the angelic authority still? The idea of an evil force is ridiculous to false teachers because, remember, they don't believe in a category of sin. The reason why sin first entered into the world is because Satan showed up to tempt Adam and Eve. Now, if you don't believe in a Satan, how do you believe in a fall? And if you don't believe that God has actually spoken through his word, what is there to disobey? See, all this starts working together. It starts making sense. The reason why there's no reason to believe in Satan is because there's no real evil. People are inherently good down and deep inside. And that's why, you know, when false teachers look at the world around them, they don't talk in terms of sin. They don't talk in terms of rebellion. The problems that we see are due to lack of education. The problems we see are due to misunderstandings. Or just because, just some people who've just made mistakes, but they were trying really hard to get it right. I mean, that, I mean, this is not surprising. I mean, we see this all the time. People advocate this all the time, that if only people had the right technology, if only the people had the right teaching, they would all do the right thing. Well, then where'd the atom bomb come from? Where did chemical w weapons come from? You know, you look at it, there is just no evidence that says that if people have the right education, they'll do what's right. We have a sin nature. We are naturally born to go against God's grain, and apart from the grace of God, completely turning us around, we'll keep pushing that direction. Now, there, like I said, there's a reason why the false teachers are invested in getting rid of authority, because they're bold and willful, but this is how it plays out. They enjoy their open sin. In fact, they celebrate their sin. And we see this in Second uh, Peter, starting in verse 12. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls first thing I want to point out about this is look at the relationship between false teachers and their sin. They count it pleasure. They revel in their deceptions. They have eyes full of adultery. They can't get enough of their sin. There is no discussion here about struggle. They're like animals. Now, think about this. Peter has a very high view of human dignity, and yet he's looking at false teachers and saying, you're like animals. When do we apply that term to people? It's like when their bodily desires and urges are just so strong that they are mastered by them. That's what an animal is like. I mean, if I throw a piece of meat on the ground for a dog, that dog's going for it. I mean, we had a golden retriever growing up. I mean, he was the sweetest dog ever. His name was Conan. His name should have been Carmel. But it's like he was a big, huge golden retriever, 
And every Christmas, we would give him a ham bone. The first year we did this, my mom didn't realize that, well, he's still a dog, and she went up to him quickly to take away the ham bone. The sweet golden retriever turned and viciously growled at her. And it's like, and she learned after that, okay, if I'm going to come to him in the future, I have to make sure I get his attention first. Because if I can get his eyes on me and not on the bone, then he's a little more normal. And it's like, but this is exactly the way false teachers are. They just indulge their bodily desires. Well, if you want to commit that sin, or if you want to commit that act of, of sexual practice, well, good. If, that, if that's what you desire, that's the way God made you. Do it. Isn't I mean, even with the gay marriage debate right now, isn't that one of the big arguments? It's like, who are we to look at those people and say, those desires are wrong? It's like, they have those desires. If they have them, they're natural. Let them do it. Or if you have a man who's in a marriage that he doesn't feel like he's that happy and he'd be more satisfied with another individual, we say, well, if that's really what you want, if that's what she makes you happy, at the end, I mean, we are just animals too. I mean, that's the, main, that's the way they think. Your, your desires are legitimate and just pursue them. But like I said, there, the big thing to notice here is that there is no struggle with sin. And the reason why I bring that up is because everyone in this room struggles with sin, myself included. And it's like, it's not the fact that there is sin in your life. It's not the matter of which sin is in your life. The matter is, what is your posture towards your sin that matters? Every single human being has the push of sin in their life. If, if I'm, sin is pushing us this way, let's say, the only way there's struggle is if there's something coming from this way and pushing back. Who are the only people who have something pushing the other way? Christians. When we trust in Christ as our Savior, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us. He changes our heart, changes our thinking, so that now we are in direct opposition to sin. And so now there's a battle. Non-Christians don't struggle with their sinful desires. They think they're legitimate, and they, they celebrate it. They have parades for it. They have movies that laugh at how immoral they can be. It's almost a, a badge of honor with the level of perversity you can reach. I was in New Orleans a couple weeks ago for a conference, and it's like, I'd never been there before, and that was rather eye-opening. It's just like, you can just, it's just, just open, like, just all of the signs on the shops. I mean, I didn't see anything that bad, but just seeing the signs on the shops was bad enough. And it's like, and people, this is like a hot spot. People go there for this. This is why, I mean, you look at it, the, the natural world inclines that way, and that is why false teachers get the traction that they do. They're appealing to innate desires of human beings. Now, I want to also draw out the fact that um, this, this sermon, I called it, Our God Saves, But From What? And this is why I, I call it this, is because the, the, the immorality practiced by the false teachers is probably where the strongest contrast comes between Christians and non-Christians. And remember, in 1 Peter 1.4, it says that we have escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. To be a Christian is to be against your sinful desires. You have them, but you're fighting with them. Non-Christians say, you have them, celebrate them. If you want it, it's legitimate. But here's the problem. This is from 2 Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. Just think about all the themes that I've been talking about with the angels, with the relationship between loving unrighteousness and loving truth. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Well, false teachers wouldn't like that part because they're Satan. With all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them strong delusion 
so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. You see, I mean, I'm not making this up what Peter is saying. This is completely consistent with the rest of the New Testament. There is a direct contrast between loving the truth and believing the truth and loving unrighteousness. You cannot say, you can't have your feet in both camps. And so either you're against your sinful desires or you're not. Either you're indulging your sinful desires or you're fighting them. And so if you remember nothing else from this sermon, this is what I want you to pick up. We have two options. Love our sin or love Jesus. The false teacher's understanding of the gospel is God is good and loving because he approves of all that I want and all that I do. Let me say that again. God is good and loving because he approves of all that I want and all that I do. That's the selling point of the false teachers. Now, here's the problem with this. They have changed Jesus in order to accommodate their sin. Contrast this with believers. The Christian understanding of the gospel is God is good and loving because he sent his son to save me from sinful desires that would have destroyed me. Let me say that again. God is good and loving because he sent his son to save me from the sinful desires that would have destroyed me. We have changed our view of sin in order to accommodate Christ as our Lord. That is the complete contrast between the way of righteousness and the way of sin. Our God saves us from the penalty and the power of sin, not just the penalty. The false teachers will be fully on board with saying, oh yeah, Jesus saved you from the penalty of sin, now live however you please. They're really not going to bother with that because at the end, they just want to be able to do what they want. As long as you keep your mouth shut about condemning their sinful practices, they don't mind what you think. If you want to believe that you're going to heaven because Jesus died, well, that's fine, as long as it doesn't impinge on my desire to live sinfully. Now, God has changed us because he has changed our heart, he's changed our thinking, so that now we want to obey him. His word is good news to us. We, we, we can talk like the psalmist in Psalm 119, you know, I love your law. You know, how shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Your word, O oh God, I have hidden in my heart so that I might not sin against you. But the question I would raise now is, this is where it gets more personal for us. Am I being legalistic when I say that we need to be obedient? That obedience is important? And the illustration I would use for this is, say I'm working for a friend of mine. I've been working for, he and I have been friends for a long time. We'll, we'll say his name is Bill. Say I'm working for him. We've been friends for a long time. I've been working for him for a few months now. And you come up to me and say, well, how have things been going with Bill? And my answer to you is, you know what? Bill is a great friend. But man, he's just a horrible boss. I mean, he just, he works me so hard. He has no idea what he's doing. He doesn't respect me as a person. I mean, he micromanages me. I just can't stand working for him. Did I compliment Bill by saying that? I mean, I might not be calling him Hitler, but I certainly didn't compliment him. And so now, think of it this way. If I sit there and I say, I trusted in Christ as my Savior. He saved me from the penalty of hell. But then someone says, well, how is it walking with Jesus? Like, oh, I love the fact that I'm not going to hell. But man, working for God is just so boring. I hate reading the Bible. I hate going to church. I hate, you know, having to give up sin. It is just such a drag. Are we complimenting Christ? Now, remember I said earlier that, you know, the word blasphemy means to slander one's character. I would argue that that's getting very close to, to blaspheming God. If we sit there and say that obedience to him is something to be avoided like the plague, 
God's grace has transformed us. He's given us a new vision of who he is. Now imagine going back to that illustration with Bill. What if you came up to me and said, well, how is it working for Bill? And I said, Bill is the best boss I've ever had. He actually cares about me. He, get, he doesn't work me too hard. He is, I'm doing things I never thought I could do because he keeps stretching me, but he always gives me everything I need to do my work. He's helping me see that I can do things I didn't know I could do. There is not a thing I wouldn't do for him. Now, I just complimented Bill very highly, didn't I? And that's the way we should view Christ. Think of Paul. Paul said, whether I live or die, I, I just want to make sure that I've been obedient to Christ. No matter what, I, I want to know him. That is the most important thing. You can take anything else from me. And that's why Paul was such an effective evangelist. People watch you when you sit there and, and your life be, for obeying Christ ends up being difficult and you're still able to say, I love working for my God. I love serving him because he has completely changed me. I see things differently now. I don't love the sins that I used to commit. In fact, I look back and I'm ashamed now. I, I wouldn't want to go back even if he let me. Even if he said, listen, you could commit any sin you want and I promise you won't go to hell. A Christian says, I don't want to go back. You've shown me a better way. Your design is perfect. You are good. I'm not ashamed of obeying you. And look at what we talked about even earlier when Jesus said, there are people who are going to come in the last day who said, Lord, I, we did this and this and this. And he says, be gone, I never knew you. Why? Because they didn't love him. Their hearts weren't changed. They did what they had to do to look good on the outside, but in the end, their hearts weren't changed. And so as I close now, I just want to make a few closing remarks. Again, I want to revisit the question, why is it so important that we mark out false teachers? We must reject the false teachers because they slander the character of our Lord and they pervert the gospel of salvation. We will reject false teaching if we love our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember Zoe's mom. She wouldn't have said anything to Zoe if she didn't love her or if she didn't think there was a threat. If you agree there's a threat and if you love you're going to point out the threat. We love our God because he has saved us from the penalty of our sin. He currently saves us from our own sinful desires. He saves us from our rebellion against his good design. And he is still saving us from the power of sin. And he saves us to eternal life with him. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is that we get to have a relationship with God and that starts the moment you trust in him. It starts now. We're not waiting to, okay, beam us up, God, and then once we're in heaven, now we'll start worshiping you. It's like, no, it starts now. We've been reconciled to our God. We've, our, our rebellion against him has been fixed. And so that is why we should love him, and that is why we must reject false teachers. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so different than the gods that this world offers. There are so many people who would tell us what we want to hear, that they would tell us that the sinful desires that we have are legitimate, and yet you know better. You made us. You know how we're supposed to function. You know that the sinful things that we want would only lead to our ultimate destruction. And so thank you. Thank you that you have loved us, and thank you that you continue to save us and deliver us from the dominion of sin. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.